weeks and months before. Oftentimes, I'm sure you feel this way, we can have big doubts, like, why did I sign up for this? Or it seems like so much work, how much work we do in order to be peaceful. seems ironic. (laughs) Wouldn't it be easier just to be at home and be peaceful there? And I think it's okay, probably appropriate to some extent at least, to see this as artificial. But there's a lot of, I don't know, artificial is probably not the best word, but there are a lot of things we do in life that are, you know, against the grain, that require some effort. We have to resist the flow of the culture, the flow of our life, the flow of our routines. I think I'm getting close to, between the retreats that I've been on and the retreats I've led, you know, probably uh, three years now, just in this kind of container, maybe even a little longer, it's hard to say. I guess it depends what you call retreat. But at least in a formal, formal retreats, you know, three years probably. And there's a very particular energy. And like any kind of medicine, it's okay for us to feel some resistance to being here. You know, a lot of really good things don't always feel great. It doesn't feel good, at least in the first few minutes when you go swimming and the water seems so cold. <laughs> but I always like to remind myself, remind others, you know, what an ancient well-worn, well-developed tradition this is for a group of people to leave behind duties and responsibilities for a period of time, to do all the work that it takes to get the food together, to find the place and create the guidelines. I mean, you heard Gail and Kim talk for, you know, 20 minutes, maybe even more, just about different guidelines for the retreat can push a lot of our buttons, you know, like, oh, why don't they just let us live the way we want to live? Why do we have to do it all a particular way? But like I said, this is something that people have been doing for a long time. People have put a lot of thought. We've learned a lot about what works and doesn't work. Learned a lot about how to create a sense of safety, as Gail mentioned. How to use enough guidelines, enough so-called rules, so that things move along smoothly without a lot of us having to think about what we're doing or whether we can do this or should do that. This is one of the great paradoxes, I think, in spiritual practice, is how useful um, containers are, structures are. It's ironic because so much of this path of awakening is learning to be free of the structures the mind creates for itself. Thinking that we're no good is a structure 
we create for ourselves, thinking that I'm better than, wondering whether I'm any good. I mean, there's any, maybe an infinite number of ways that we create these, construct these <clears throat> ideas. And so the path is really about being free from all of that. But here we've created this whole little mini-civilization which we call retreat culture. You know, we're on retreat together. But this particular structure, this construction, is all about supporting freedom from constructions. But it's still a construction, you know, with certain rules and certain patterns that we all follow. And, you know, we have our equipment, our cushions and our shawls and our techniques, our teachings. There's really no way around this. You know, being disgusted or not wanting any constructions is just another construction. So we might as well own the fact that we're in this world of constructions. Let's use it. Let's use the retreat container to understand this predicament we're in. You know, with this kind of mind, with its sort of tendencies to create structures that we don't then always are bumping up against and having problems with and feeling weighed down by, let's use this particular construction to illuminate all of that. You know, part of the this construction, this retreat container, part of it is to sort of free us up, but partly it gives us something to bounce off of. You know, all the guidelines... We'll just notice ourselves having a hard time. And on the one hand, we probably, with some reflection, can see it's pretty reasonable, seems to make sense. But on the other hand, I really don't like it. <laughs> I don't want to submit to it. You know, I want to take a shower at 10.20 p.m. <laughs> I want to stay in the shower as long as I want to stay or, you know, do whatever I want to do. And then the structure, the schedule, the rules, having a yogi job, sharing a bedroom, eating what's served instead of what we would get for ourselves. We learn so much about our habits. We learn so much how, uh, how our mind likes to go toward aversion, complaining, blaming, irritation how much our mind tends to go towards wanting things to be different or better. It's one of the great things about commitment, and I'll talk a little bit more tonight before we end about techniques, you know, how we actually work with our minds, how you might work with your mind this retreat. But just generally, commitment is one of the most powerful tools for deepening understanding. You know, the commitment it took to get us here. You know, we've committed to coming to the retreat. There are a lot of people who signed up for this retreat who aren't here. And a lot of people who wanted to be here who are still on the waiting list. It takes a lot of commitment, you know, but that commitment has payoffs. Same with, you know, partners and people you get married to. 
these kind of commitments have real payoffs too. They're not easy. It's not easy to make a commitment to another person. It's usually, in most cases, messy. And at times, really almost unbearable. <laughs> I didn't think that would be a surprise to anyone. But, <laughs> but there's something really amazing that happens when you commit to a relationship. And we learn so many things about our mind when we're in it for the long haul, or at least that's the intention in the mind, to be, not to give up. Same thing with a spiritual practice, same thing with a community, same thing with certain values that we might have, like the value of not harming, not killing, the value of speaking the truth, not bending the truth, not um, leaving things unsaid that should be spoken. So this commitment to truthful speaking. Same thing with just being committed to the retreat container, being committed to, for example, the container of noble silence. You know, this is just a phrase, these two words, noble silence, noble, in the sense that it's really beautiful. It's really um, inspiring that people put down this really big part of our culture, of our personality to engage, to be social, to put it down for a period of time. doesn't mean, like Gail mentioned, that there are going to be times when functional speech is, is necessary, like around your yogi jobs, for some of you. Of course, in the small groups, we'll be sharing there will be a few one-on-one interviews for some of you. But for the you know great majority of the time, 99.5% of the time, we're really dropping that whole part of our life, which is to be a social being. And you know when we're a social being, it's not as easy to be reflective like what the mind is doing, aware of how the mind is and what it's doing. So when we put down that huge thing, all of a sudden it's relatively easy to know what the mind's doing. We see the mind acting out all over the place because it's not getting distracted or lost in its social interactions. So it's there in living color for us to see. And we can either hate it or we can be wise and compassionate. Oh, oh, this is how the mind is. So just the commitment to noble silence now, you don't have to go on retreat to practice noble silence. We can do this any afternoon when we don't have too many duties and responsibilities. And then, you know, somebody might come to your door and you, you can just deal with that and go back. Same thing here on retreat. Don't get tight if all of a sudden, you know, you bump somebody and before you know it, you both have said something like, oh, sorry about that. Like, don't feel like you've made this big mistake. So it's not that kind of like all or none. It's just a skillful means, noble silence. Like, we just take it on because it's functional, it, like it, it reveals something. But when moments, when we lose it by mistake or there's a reason for functional speech, well, we just take care of business. We just do what we do. And then we immediately go right back to noble silence when it's done and not get tight. And that's true with all the rules, all the guidelines, and your meditation technique. 
there's no need to get tied about these commitments that we're making. Because it's it's just a skillful means. Like we're doing it because it supports awakening. It supports the mind seeing what it ha- what isn't really seen clearly clearly yet about the mind. So it's all about awakening to the nature of the mind or the nature of the heart. And we make commitments to this container and the different aspects of retreat life. We make a big commitment because it helps us to have insight into the mind, to see what we're not seeing. Part of the rules, the guidelines, are all about the sense of community and creating a really beautiful, wholesome community. And maybe you feel that already. I mean, most of us don't know each other well. But here we all all are in this relatively small room, sitting relatively close together. And I'm guessing, I mean, I feel this way, and I've been in this situation more often than most, but still, I bet most of us are feeling pretty safe with this group of people in this context. A little bit later tonight, we'll do the Refuges and Precepts, and one of the reasons we do this is to publicly, out loud, commit to not harming and basically come together, say together in this somewhat formal way that we're really here to wake up. That's really why we're here together. And in the context of waking up, we're really here to take care of each other. And that my practice is really here to support myself and to support others. And your practice is really here to support yourself and to support others that we're creating, we're partly, or we are actually creating the conditions for each other's awakening, the opening of the heart, the freeing up of the heart. So I just want to cover a a couple wholesome attitudes that you can recognize and develop all the way through the retreat at any time. These two attitudes... You're just going to want to keep reflecting on their presence and how they're operating in your mind or in your heart, whether you're formally sitting or walking or doing your yogi job or whatever you might be doing. And they sound a little contradictory, but the idea is to see it as a spectrum and to be able to, at some moments, emphasize one of these attitudes. And in other moments of the retreat, you're going to be wanting to emphasize another, this other attitude. And then I'll talk a little bit about some of the specific techniques that you might want to work with, strategies for how you work with your mind. But first, these two attitudes that you hear a lot about, not just in the Buddhist tradition, but just generally in spiritual circles. So one of these attitudes you might feel, often people feel it at the beginning of a retreat. It's often the attitude we use to get to retreat. You could call it spiritual urgency or just a sense that it wouldn't be too hard for us to miss our opportunity in life, to be swept away by various kinds of distractions. You know, for some of you, for some of us, it might be, you know, endless reading of political blogs and checking the polls and, you know, just 
obsessed with the horse race or the election and, you know, hating the people we hate and only seeing the good in the people we like and and just suffering around that. So we notice, so maybe for some of you it's the election, for others it might be sports, for other people it might be certain relationships, making money, fearing about this or that. So we all have our own particular areas where we tend to be obsessive, get easily absorbed and lost, could get swept away for long periods of time. And so out of that, out of recognizing that, this sense of urgency can develop for us. Like, I don't want to wake up on my deathbed, you know, there in my last minutes, looking back upon my life to see that how many episodes of such and such TV show I watched (laughs) three times each one, you know, or something like that. Like, of what ultimate value was that time? or any number of other activities. So you can already sense, you know, both the value of a sense of urgency, like how useful it is, and sense perhaps the shadow of urgency, right? It's like it could easily slide into a fear and a tightness, or I better not miss this opportunity. So then we start getting really tight on the retreat and really having expectations. This sit better send me over the top. You know, and then somebody sneezes and we want to kill them or or we have knee pain and we feel so betrayed by that knee pain, like I can't get concentrated because that pain in my knee, I keep having to adjust. So this just learning to find that sense of spiritual urgency, that's a, that authentic, um, wholesome um, energy, it's a, it really has a sense of like, concern, like missing our opportunity. This life, this precious life is an opportunity to have insight, opportunity to see what we haven't seen, opportunity to release whatever the mind, heart, body's holding on to, to put it down, to put the load down. And you can even see this in terms of ancestral suffering. You know, some of you have known your maybe great-grandparents, certainly many of you know known your grandparents. All of us have probably known our parents or our caretakers at least. And we just have a sense both of the genetic and also just the cultural uh, legs of suffering that have, we're the sort of continuation of. And out of compassion, recognizing this, it's like this is part of what a spiritual path is is this ancestral healing. It's like humanity is carrying a lot of ignorance, a lot of fear and hatred, a lot of endless greed, you know, consumerism. There's just a lot of sickness. And this is part of our opportunity to put some of that down for everybody's well-being, for our own and for everybody's well-being. So that urgency really comes from that recognition, like there is work that needs to be done. And there is actually nobody better to do this work than us, than this person right here. Because if I can't do this work, if I'm unwilling to sort of show up and do this work as best I can, well, who is? 
you know, if I can make an excuse that it would be better just to, you know, what's going to be on the Daily Show tonight? <laughs> you know, it would be very easy, like Gail mentioned about shutting off the cell phones. It would be very easy, you know, while you're lying in bed before falling asleep, just to see if there's any important news out there or anybody sent you any emails or, you know, to catch something on YouTube. It just makes sense. Well, why not? What's the harm of a little entertainment? But see, it's it's really the urgency, that sense of urgency is seeing things. Again, it, it can seem a little black and white, but it's like a life of distraction, a life of postponement, postponing what's of real value versus a life of over and over again directing the mind, directing the heart towards what's most important or deepest value. And even understanding what your deepest value is. You know, some of us, maybe you've been around for a while, pretty clearly have this sense of this value of the heart's release. There's some intuition that this heart can let go of so much, so much that we don't even realize we're carrying a lot of the time. The fear of separation, the feel of alienation, the this, this sort of weight of wanting and neediness that's so commonplace we often aren't even aware of it. But to the degree we're aware of it, then this value of, oh, let's put this down. This can be put down. This isn't needed. And we're really grateful. There's a somewhat funny story. Um, some of you know Larry Rosenberg, uh, one of the IMS, senior IMS teachers, and he's one of the founders of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, a, probably one of the most established urban Vipassana centers like Common Ground um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And uh, he tells of a time he was at Ajahn Monastery, a place that I practiced at in Thailand. And uh, Ajahn is a you know, really intense teacher. I saw him when he was in his, well into his 90s, and he was still, still so vibrant and alive and intense. And I would listen to his talks in Thai. I couldn't understand any of it. But it was just such a trip to see him give a talk, this 93-year-old person, and uh, laughing and scolding and everything in between and just going on and on. <laughs> He died recently. Um, but anyway, he talks of a time, this is probably back maybe in the 80s, perhaps even in the 70s, I'm not sure, when he was there at the monastery, and he had a translator for him. Um, and uh, Ajahn Mahabur that was there scolding one of the monks and really laying into him, all he had done is put a cup down near the edge of a table where someone might have bumped it and knocked it off. You know, So instead of like far away from the edge sort of near the edge. And he was just laying into them, laying into them. And then he stopped, and he turned to Larry Rosenberg's translator and said, tell him, tell him I'm attacking the defilements, not the person, <laughs> or something like that. This idea that, uh, you know, part of the sense of urgency is whenever we notice a little greed in the mind, you know, we're there in the food line, and... Uh, that's just, you know, that tendency where we look to see if anybody's watching. And then, you know, we'll take a little bit more if no one's watching. 
But if someone's watching, then we'll maybe wait until nobody's watching. <laughs> Come back later. And just that, that, like, recognizing, oh, that's greed. It's not about whether we should have that extra piece or not, but it's that the mind investing in greed and really seeing, like, that we want to look at. Is this what I want to cultivate? Is this what I want to set in motion? Or just fuming about somebody, you know, here we are looking serene, but inside we're fuming about somebody who's got a cold, you know, and sniffling or, you know, whatever it might be. Maybe fuming about something that happened a long time ago. So the sense of urgency arises with this feeling like, is this, it's like a sense of wholesome disgust. Is this what I want to be doing with this mind? Is this what I want to be setting in motion with this mind? What might be better to be doing with this mind right now? What else could I be doing with this mind than getting lost in this pattern? So that's one attitude. All day long for the next three and a half days, you can be just noticing the sense of urgency, teasing out what's not helpful in it, strengthening what seems really good about it. So it's a real like accessible force attitude in your mind that you can tap into anytime because you need that strength sometimes right that's the strength that allows us to make a commitment to keep showing up you know to stay put when things are difficult so we need that sense of urgency to not just take the easy way you know there's a lot of things we learn when we don't just do what's easy And then the other attitude you're going to want to explore in the same way and get really interested in and learn how to access regularly and clean it up and get rid of, you know, what's what's corrupt in it, purify it, is what we could call the attitude of patience or kindness, forgiveness. In a way, just like a teacher like Ajahn Mahabhua, this great Thai master, represents you know, this energy of urgency. And by the way, at their monastery, they don't move slowly. Everybody's moving quickly. And it's such a scene. He's a very popular monk. Well, he's dead now, but when I was there, uh, 2002 or something, um, you know, he was very, very famous in Thailand, and people would come from all over the country to be with him. And uh, so there's always many, many lay people bringing food to the monastery every day. Um, You know, at least at least a hundred or more. And it was like such a scene because they'd have to divide all the food up for all the monks, all the nuns and lay women and lay men. Um, And uh, they'd do this in high speed, running around, moving this, moving that, because he has to receive all the food. He has to touch it and take a little bit of it. And uh, so all those dishes have to pass in front of him. And then they have to be divided up to everybody there, you know. And so there's, you know, maybe 40 women staying at the monastery and, you know, 40 men or so staying at the monastery and then 100 visiting lay people. So there's a couple hundred people there and doing that day after day. So he represents that end. And Thich Nhat Hanh maybe represents this other attitude. Like really, he teaches a lot about this other attitude about befriending life, befriending our defilements, you know, not being so much uh, afraid of them or wanting to 
destroy them, wanting to attack them, wanting to go beyond them, but really uh, sort of strengthening and uh, uncovering the power of forgiveness, the power of acceptance, the power of gentleness. And both are needed. You know, we need both the quality of love and uh, really um, refine it so that it's a, a, a powerful force in the mind. And we need that power, like that sharp sword that can cut through the sword of wisdom that sees, that is willing to remove what needs to be removed. You know, we can think about some of the you know, most extreme examples of somebody who has uh, gangrene or something, you know, and having to remove part of the limb. That the kind of energy that would allow us to sort of say, yeah, I don't have a choice. As best I can understand it, I need to, I need to ha- cut this off. Because that's how it feels sometimes, you know. Our habits that are well-worn, that we like, you know, we like them. <laughs> And it's not easy to go beyond them, to let them go. So we need, you know, these two attitudes. One is infinite patience, gentleness, forgiveness, compassion, like really appreciating the way that it is, really appreciating how difficult it is. And, on the other hand, the willingness to do what we can do. to remember what's possible and not be willing to settle for anything short of that. Like, I, I'm not going to resign myself to being a suffering human being. And then on this side is, I completely forgive myself for being a suffering human being. And like I said, I, I told you, it sounds paradoxical. But remember that the practice isn't about like finding the right way to be the right person to be, the practice is to pragmatically develop freedom, you know, just to see what works. And so you can just see these, as, these attitudes, not like one's right and one's wrong, and we're trying to figure out which one's right for me. They're both right at the right time. So when urgency, when that sharp sword is needed, we know how to access it. And when the kindness and forgiveness is needed, we know how to access it. And then it gets really interested, like the tendency to always go back to one attitude. And we want to question that, like, well, what's that about? Am I getting lazy? You know, is that what that's about? Or am I just being mean? Do I just like, I'm on a power trip? You know, some people who overdo the urgency, they just like the intensity and the power like throwing things around sometimes, you know, when I'm working, you know, and I'm kind of enjoying it. And then I look and I say, oh, I'm just liking the sort of throwing things around that it's almost, there's a, in Buddhist cosmology, there's something called the warring gods realm, where it's a whole realm of existence where beings, you know, have a lot of power and they're constantly pushing and fighting and like throwing their weight around and getting off on it. I mean, that's, that's sort of their happiness, is like having power and throwing it around. And that's that shadow to that sense of urgency, like we get dramatic, you know, and you can catch yourself talking about Buddhism in these dramatic ways. And, 
the evilness of our defilements and uh, how we've crushed them. You know, I sat there and I didn't move, you know, the pain, and I refused to move, and I crushed mind with mind. And But the same, you know, the, the shadow of loving kindness and forgiveness is this mushiness, and it's like, you know, you, you can think about these in terms of parenting styles, how both in the extreme don't work where we're always coddling the child and uh, coddling ourselves and forgiving ourselves. And, you know, it, sometimes you hear the Republicans talking about this in terms of our education system, and it's like killing people with low expectations. You know, it's sort of been something that's been thrown around a lot, um, you know, where we don't expect anything from people. So they don't deliver anything, you know, and they get dependent on um, not achieving get dependent on welfare. So there's there's a shadow to both of these attitudes. So that's just a suggestion for the retreat is to get really interested, like pull out whatever your technique is, you know, whether you're doing walking practice or sitting practice, and if you're sitting, how you're working with your mind in the sitting, but really work with that attitude. Use that attitude with your particular strategy. Use urgency. That sense of, you know, getting up on your high horse, okay, this is the time. I'm going to be committed here. I'm not just going to, one more sit, just get to the end of the sit. No, I'm going to really use this time. I'm going to uh, give myself to this technique. And just see how that works. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Other times, you know, just have that that really relying and, and uh, developing that soft quality of forgiveness and patience and kindness. One of my teachers, Stephen Smith, once said about this soft side to kind of help. He says, you know, it's the part, that, that attitude, it understands that even our most depraved Behaviors, thoughts, words are just misguided attempts to take care of ourselves. So instead of like, kill that defilement, it's, oh, you know, that's, I understand what you're doing. You're just trying to be safe or you're just trying to be happy. That's not a very good way to do it, but I understand what you're trying to do, you know? So there's immediate forgiveness with it. Tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll go through some basic uh, meditation instruction each morning, in fact, at 8.30 right after breakfast. But in the meantime, you know, you can just uh, use these two attitudes, like between now and when you go to sleep tonight and for your first sit in the morning. You know, all of you have been practicing, some of you a lot, some of you are relatively new. But just... See, whatever of these two attitudes seem most comfortable, start with that one and just see if you can really tune into the power and the value of it and also tune in to how the shadow might be operating in your mind with that particular attitude, like an over-dependence on it, wanting it to do more than it can do, fear of the other side of the spectrum. And then later you know, maybe after your first sit, then uh, 
then for periods of time intend to cultivate the other attitude. See if you can find it somehow as an intention in the mind and work with it, develop it. So we're going to do the refuges and precepts next. And as I mentioned earlier, this is an ancient practice in all the different Buddhist cultures, all the different schools of Buddhism. There is this taking of the refuges and precepts, and especially at the beginning of a practice period or the beginning of a retreat. It's a way of creating community. So we're going to do the refuges, which are the first three stanzas after the introduction homage, introductory homage, the namotasa, where we give homage to the Buddha, our teacher, way back 2,500 years ago, who set these teachings in motion. Then we're going to take refuge three times. And we're going to do it in Pali, which is traditional. And taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, for some people, especially in Asian culture, it's really this, uh, this connection with lineage and the, this particular historic teacher and that lineage of teachings and practitioners over the centuries. But more importantly, especially for those of us who weren't raised in a Buddhist culture and don't have that deep cultural imprint of the Buddha sort of representing everything that's good, it's better to think about Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha in psychological terms. So the Buddha ultimately represents the quality of awakening. In the Thai forest tradition, the Buddha means the one who knows, but not the one who knew 2,500 years ago, but in the mind, in the heart right now, this capacity, essential, inherent capacity to the mind to know, unrestricted knowing, or knowing without attachment, you could say. Knowing that is free from greed and aversion and ignorance. So this is what we mean by taking refuge in Buddha. We're taking refuge in this aspect of the mind, this sort of nature of the mind. It's probably a good way to say it. The deepest nature of the mind. And we take refuge in Dhamma. We're taking refuge in the way that it is, just the lawfulness of everything that's moving. Our personality is moving. You know, the conditioned habits of our mind is moving. Everything's moving, seeing and hearing and touching. So just the aliveness of life itself, the messiness of life itself, we take refuge in that. We're not taking refuge in being afraid of it or needing it to be other than what it is. We're taking refuge in life as it actually is, as our teacher, really. Because it is what reveals the Buddha. Because it's only the Buddha, the one who knows, that can open to this messy, crazy uncertain world, that this life that's being lived here. So the Buddha and Dhamma, they play together. The Buddha is the ultimate subject, and the Dhamma is the ultimate object, that which is being known. And we take refuge in this dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the one who knows, knowing the way it is. And what comes out of that beautiful dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma is what we call Sangha, the third refuge. Sangha are all the beautiful qualities we sometimes see in our own heart 
see in other people, when the mind is pure, purely knowing, connecting with the way it is, Buddha knowing Dhamma, then we see things like generosity, and then we see kindness, and we see fearlessness, and patience, and clarity, and wisdom, and compassion. These are all qualities of Sangha, the beautiful, enlightened qualities of humans. When the mind is free, when the mind is freely awake, freely knowing the way it is. So Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, these refuges, they just represent our deepest aspiration. It's really up to us. I mean, if you don't want to use this language, that's fine. But somehow you have to find a way to, in your own mind, to care about this quality of knowing the pure awareness. You have, to, you have to find a way to be inspired by the way it is, <laughs> this world that we inhabit, and to really say yes to it. And you have to be really inspired uh, about the beautiful qualities that can shine through when things are free, where the kindness and compassion is effortless. It's not like you're trying to be a good person. It's just the way it is when the heart is really free, when the mind is freed up. And then we go through the five precepts where we're taking refuge, I mean, we're take, undertaking the training to refrain from taking life or more generally from harming, from stealing, from sexual misconduct. But in the context of retreat, we're refraining from all sexual activity, which, you know, as much as possible, even sexual fantasies. Now, they may arise, <clears throat> it's not that uncommon, but we don't intentionally indulge in them. So when we notice that we're, we have sexual fantasies, we just say, well, this isn't the time for that. And it actually really supports the sense of safety that, like I mentioned earlier, we're putting down that social arena. So part of that is we're just, you know, we're still sexual beings, of course, that never changes, but we're just not going to feed that part of our personality for this period of time. And it doesn't matter how often it gets triggered, we just don't intentionally add fuel to it. And that's just a commitment we make to, together for retreat. And then we undertake the training to refrain from telling lies, when noble silence really helps with that. <laughs> and undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind. Okay, so we'll do the... Pali and English for the precepts, but just the Pali for the three refuges. We'll do this. It's nine o'clock now, and then this will take about seven minutes, and then we'll sit for about seven minutes and end at 9.15. So feel free to stretch your legs out for just a few seconds if you want, so you'll be comfortable sitting for 15 minutes. Ring the bell three times, and then we'll do the namotasa part to begin with. Namo tassa 
Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhamman Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training rule to refrain from taking life. Adinadana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training rule to refrain from stealing. Abramacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training rule to refrain from sexual intercourse. Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training rule to refrain from telling lies. Surya Maria Ajapamada Tana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training rule to refrain from intoxicating liquors and drugs that lead to carelessness. Idam me silam magapalanyana sa pachayohutu May my conduct conduce to attainment the highest fruits of liberation. So we'll just sit for about ten minutes.
again our noble silence now. And uh, I know a couple of groups are going to be meeting with Kim and Gail just in the other room here. This sheet with the precepts on the back side is a chant we'll be doing uh, the next two nights. So you might want to just put this under your sitting cushion so you have it tomorrow night and Saturday night. Wishing everyone a good rest tonight. And we'll see each other in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.